It's April 14, 1929. Bertha Sell and four of her children become the first Latter-day Saint converts in the South American country of Brazil. Meanwhile, in Europe, German saints are called upon to fill local church leadership positions. And in the United States, a small congregation in Cincinnati, Ohio, gains an unlikely branch president who strengthens the church there. These international happenings are next in Chapter 18, Any Place on Earth. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us today is Scott Hales, the lead writer and a general editor of Saints, Volume 3. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, at this point, Scott, we are making good progress through the book. We're coming up to the halfway mark. I think this would be a really good point to reflect on the process of researching and writing this volume. Would you mind telling us some of your favorite experiences from the project? Yeah, well, one of the things that has made volume three different from the previous two volumes is that a lot of it was written at home. So we went into lockdown because of the pandemic pretty soon after we finished part one. Uh, and so right around the time World War I began is when we uh, kind of all started working from home. So it was interesting to see that change in dynamic. It kind of threw a wrench into our process in some ways. But it was a very interesting experience because, as you know, not long after the chapter where we discussed World War I, we discussed the pandemic of 1918. So there was this kind of weird experience to be writing about a pandemic in the midst of a pandemic. And so I could kind of relate to kind of what we were talking about. So one of the best experiences I had working on this volume was, was writing the scene involving Joseph F. Smith and the redemption of the dead. And that was powerful to me for a number of reasons, but mainly for me personally, it was so interesting was, you know, I had begun writing about Joseph F. Smith when he was a baby. And so I'd kind of seen him or watched him in a sense grow up uh, across volumes, you know, to his mission in Hawaii and his experiences in the first presidency on the raid in volume two. Uh, and then to be there at the end of his life and to see all these terrible things that were happening to him at the time with the death of his son and his illness, I just remember just feeling overwhelmed uh, with sadness by everything he was afflicted with. And then to have this powerful experience there at the end of his life really testified to me of the Lord's love for him, to give them this vision of the afterlife that has really blessed all of our lives. And so that was a really powerful moment for me as I was working on the book. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's such a neat experience that you had, like you said, writing about his life from the time he was a baby until the time that he died. And I think that that's something that Saints does in some small degree for the readers is we do feel this connection and we get to see the lives of some of these saints from beginning to end. And it's an incredible feeling of connection, I think. What's really funny is I'm not much of a crier. In fact, I, I rarely cry, but I bawl like a baby every time one of these characters dies, like Joseph F. Smith or, or Susie Young Gates, I just, I just break down. I'm a, I become just a big baby. Well, you know them so well. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks again for sharing. Well, in chapter 18, we read about some very important developments for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Scott, why don't we start by talking about a couple scenes set in Brazil? 
Will you just tell us a little bit more about who Reinhold Stuf was and then also what was he hoping to accomplish in Brazil? Yeah, so Reinhold Stuf, he was a German-born Latter-day Saint who had joined the church there in Germany. He had fought in World War I on the, the side of the German army. He had been wounded. He was a POW. So he had this really, really interesting past. He was a member of the church. He eventually emigrated to the United States. And pretty soon after his emigration, he was called to serve as the mission president in South America. And because of the large German population in South America, they, the first presidency figured the best person to call would be a German speaker. And so he was the one they, they selected. And so he went down there and they had some success with the German population in, in Buenos Aires, but not as much as they had hoped. And so they realized they needed to start taking the gospel to the Spanish speakers there. But Reinhold still felt obligated to take the gospel to German speakers. And so that's what led him to investigate Brazil as a potential mission field because he knew that there were lots of German speakers there, lots of German immigrants. And he even knew of a few church members there. And so he and another missionary went and investigated the possibilities there. And he liked what he saw. They had little success in Sao Paulo, but when they went to a city called Joinville in southern Brazil, they found some people who were interested in the gospel. And so eventually missionaries were sent there. And that's kind of the story we tell uh, there in the first scene. But he was called there because of the large German population and seemed to be the right guy for the job. Now, the work in Brazil, we're introduced in the other scene to Ferdinand and Bertha Sell. And life seems to be rather difficult for them. They've got these challenges for their family. What do we know about Joinville, though, how receptive were people to the missionaries' efforts? Well, like I said, when Reinhold Stuf went there, he found the people receptive, but no one had yet joined the church. And in fact, after the missionaries arrived, I think it was something like six months passed before uh, anybody really, I mean, people showed interest, they held meetings, people would attend, but nobody wanted to be baptized. And that's really where the Cell family comes in. I think of a little known story in the history of Brazil, but it's an impactful one because the Cell family really were the first baptisms. So we have missionaries working in Joinville. We've got some members starting to join the church. But what were some of the challenges that the church, the missionaries and these first members were experiencing? Well, I think there were a number of really significant challenges that they had to overcome. First and foremost was in Brazil, they're essentially was no church. And so the missionaries really had to build up the church from scratch. Uh, and you can just imagine how difficult that would be. You know, as a missionary myself, when I went to Brazil 20 years ago, we never had to do that. Things were already pretty well established where I was. But that was not the case for these missionaries. And so they had to take care of that. First of all, they had to figure out how to raise up a church. Second of all, there were some language barriers. Now, the missionaries, they called down to Brazil and the, the two missionaries Emil Schindler and William Heinz, they were German speakers, and so they were able to communicate. But there's always some challenges there whenever you're interacting in a language you're not accustomed to. And another thing that was a challenge was just the opposition, you know, whether it was from just indifferent people or whether it was from other churches, there was some opposition there as well. And so the missionaries really were fighting an uphill battle when it came to trying to, to get things going in Joinville. And, you know, sometimes these things just take time. Conversion takes time. I've never been to Brazil. I've never been to South America. But today, as members of the church, we hear about the growth of the church there. We hear about the huge numbers of members of the church there, the number of wards and branches. And it's amazing 
for readers such as myself who have no real connection to see how something that's become so big began as something so small just 90 years ago or so. It's the acorn metaphor that that Elder Melvin J. Ballard used at the time. That's what I love about it. Right now, uh, I'm working on the history of Brazil in the 1960s. This will be for volume four. And it's just remarkable to think how far the church has grown from 1929 when the cells were baptized to the 1960s. It's just remarkable to think about how quickly the church really grew there. Well, we talked earlier about the German immigrants being taught in Brazil, but now we have a story that is in Germany about a man named Otto Schultzka. And he's a member of the church, but his conversion is so interesting because his father, Friedrich, did everything he could to avoid the Mormons. So I just think it's so fascinating. Let's listen to a short extract from chapter 18. Years earlier, his father Friedrich Schulzke had heard terrifying stories about Mormon missionaries, so he had prayed fervently that they would always stay far away from his home and family. And when Mormon missionaries eventually showed up at his door, he chased them away with a broomstick. Some time later, Friedrich met two young men who introduced themselves as missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They invited him to a meeting, and he was so impressed by what he heard that he invited the elders to preach in his home. When they arrived, however, he was startled to see one of them carrying a Book of Mormon, and he knew at once that they belonged to the very church he was trying to avoid. Still, he reluctantly let them speak, and before long, he knew they were messengers from God. This story is just such a good example of how the full name of the church was of value for the missionaries. I mean, that's been such a focus now, and I think we've seen a lot of blessings come from that currently, but it's just neat to go back and see that that made a difference then. Yeah, I think you're right about the value of the stories. Really, it shows the power in using the name of the church. And this is still true today. I think using the full name of the church has a destabilizing effect sometimes on people where you use it and people are taken aback by it because, first of all, it's so long. And second of all, they may not be used to hearing it in its entirety. Everybody recognizes the name Mormon, but as we know, that name sometimes carries some connotations. And certainly that's what we see here throughout this chapter, not just in this scene, but in others. The name Mormon carries the connotation of polygamy and other such things. And by using the full name of the church here, the missionaries are able to avoid those connotations and really speak the truth of the gospel to this man. And it made a world of difference, so much so that when he realized what was going on, he was okay with it. He let them speak their peace and went on. So I think it's a lesson we can all learn today. I mean, I know that sometimes it could be a challenge to use the full name of the church because it is so long or because we're not used to it. But as President Nelson promised us, we will see the value of it. We will receive the blessings for doing so. Now, Scott, you can provide some good insights into the process of writing saints. How did you and the, and the rest of the team deal with the issue of the name of the church when writing saints? We basically just followed the counsel given to us by President Nelson. And interestingly, Saints Volume 1 was published before President Nelson gave his talk on the name of the church. Uh, and so we have gone back and fixed a few places where we use the word Mormon to follow that counsel. And one of the things that I found is that it hasn't been that much of a challenge. When we first started on the project, one of the things that was important to us was to use the word saints. 
We didn't want to call church members Mormons. We wanted to make sure that they were called saints to emphasize both the title of the book and the meaning behind the title, this, this idea of all of us becoming saints through Jesus Christ. And so we were already pretty well in the practice of using the full name of the church and referring to church members as saints or Latter-day Saints. And I haven't really found it to be much of a challenge at all. I've actually found it to be quite enjoyable. In some ways, it's made me think about that name in a new way. You know, what does it mean for us to call ourselves Latter-day Saints? And to think about the teachings of King Benjamin and what he teaches about the atonement and what all of us are trying to accomplish in this life through it has really made me proud of the name Saints or Latter-day Saints. I think I value what the word Mormon means culturally in many ways. But when I think about my spiritual life, when I think about who I am in relationship to God, uh, in relationship to my Savior, in my relationship to the rest of the world, I like thinking of myself as a saint. It's completely changed my outlook on the word. Thank you so much for that. So let's take a moment to talk about the American missionaries that were serving in Europe during this time. Why was it that American missionaries so often took on the leadership roles in Europe, and how did that affect local members? I think one of the big reasons why American missionaries were in leadership positions at the time is, is just simply tradition. That had been the case for many, many years, and I think there was a certain assumption that that's how it was supposed to be. And so I think, for one thing, it's just how it was always done. I think there was a sense uh, among some of the Americans, both in the missionaries, the leaders, that because they came from Utah and they had grown up in the church, they were supposed to, or the, I guess maybe the assumption was they knew how the church functioned, so they had that experience. And so I think it was just how things were done. And I mentioned you know, working on Brazil in the 1960s. So Brazil in the 1960s is kind of experiencing something similar, where they're beginning to shift from missionaries and leadership positions to members of the church. And one of the things that Wayne Beck, who was the mission president at the time, said is, you know, when he began releasing all these missionaries and putting in Brazilian members into these leadership positions, he said that some of the missionaries were a little upset because they didn't quite get the glory that they previously had. And I think that was part of it as well. I think there was some esteem associated with that. But as you know, and as we show in the chapter, this did not always sit well with the members of the church in Europe and elsewhere, because a lot of these guys, even though they had grown up in the church, they didn't really have a whole lot of leadership experience. A lot of them were immature. This was at a time when the church began to call younger men to serve on missions. So before, as we've seen in previous volumes, you could be 35, 40 years old, married with six kids, and they would still send you on a mission. That was beginning not to be the case at this time. And so you had these really young guys going out on missions, and most of them didn't speak the language very well. So, you know, they didn't have the MTC, or they didn't have much language training. So they got there, and they could barely speak the language. They didn't have a whole lot of experience. They were immature, and here they were trying to tell church members who may have been in the church all their lives as well, who may have been in there for 20, 30 years, and could speak the language perfectly, obviously, what to do. And so that, I mean, clearly did not sit well with some and, and was a matter of some tension. Especially when, and this surprised me in the book, when locals who had been called in these leadership positions were then replaced by these missionaries. I thought that was pretty fascinating. It would be really hard for the members to accept, I think, in a lot of ways. And it was interesting to me in this chapter because we're reading about John and Leah Witso too. And she even says she's coming to realize that Zion's not a place. It's the people, it's the pure in heart. And so it seems like there's this disconnect to what Leah's experiencing and her perspective, and then reading about these missionaries who are replacing local leaders in, in these positions. And so I think that that's such an interesting time for the church, I think, 
globally. It's such an important time. I mean, if you think about it, we're beginning to see a more recognizable church in this volume. We see this time and time again. And one of the big, big, big changes that occurs is the end of the gathering, which is such a big theme in volume two. And here the church is really becoming a global entity. And it's the first time that we're seeing how Zion plays out on a global scale. You know, in volume one, it's all about the center place, independence, and and trying to build up this community. We see that expand a little bit more in volume two. And then here we see how the church begins to conceptualize Zion on a global scale. And a lot of it has to do with these local members taking upon themselves leadership responsibilities and really taking ownership of their local congregations and the church in their country. So let's talk about the Widstows. Why was it President Widstow that was able to bring about this change in having local leaders take responsibility? Well, I think the important thing about him was that he was a European himself. So as we know from volume two, he and his mother and brother joined the church in Norway. I guess his mother joined the church in Norway, emigrated. He and his brother were baptized in Logan. But he identified with Europe throughout his entire life. He was educated there, as we see earlier in the volume. He served some small missions there. His mother served a mission there. He knew several European languages, and he loved the European people. And I think he identified with them in a way that made him sympathetic to them and could help him really see their potential as leaders and as as European saints, not just saints, but specifically European saints. He could see the potential in these saints. He knew what they could do. He could speak their language. He understood in part what they wanted from the church and what they needed from the church. And I think he and Leas tried very hard throughout their mission to provide those resources for them. And obviously Otto, we're going to read about him and find out more about the Tilsit branch as we read on in the book. But let's talk about leaders a little bit more. We have another branch president in this chapter. We've got Charles Anderson, who's a branch president over in Cincinnati. Perhaps you could just take a moment to tell our listeners a little bit more about who Charles Anderson was. So... Cincinnati is near and dear to my heart. Cincinnati is the place where I grew up, and it has been a joy to learn more about the branch. And I've been especially interested in learning about Charles Anderson, who is someone I did not know about before we started researching and writing this story arc. And he is an interesting character. We don't really go into too much detail in the book about his biography. But what I find very fascinating about him is that he comes to Cincinnati in disgrace. So he is a Scandinavian saint, an immigrant, but he he was living in Salt Lake before he came to Cincinnati. He had a government job. And at one point, he was accused of graft and a warrant was issued for his arrest. So he was working as, I think he oversaw a state hospital or something like that. And he was hired, in a sense, to install voting machines throughout the city, which was another government job. But he did so under an assumed name, which was sketchy. And so people accused him of taking money. Basically, it's a graft is essentially a bribe, taking money inappropriately. He was accused of corruption, and he fled to Canada in disgrace. There are some accounts, if you look at the newspaper, where he may have attempted suicide But he was apprehended by the police. He was brought back to the United States where he stood trial and he was acquitted. But nevertheless, 
his name had been dragged through the mud. He had been, like I said, disgraced. And so he and his wife, I believe they were in their 50s or 60s at this time, they went east to Cincinnati and tried to start over. And immediately, one of the things that he did was he contacted the mission president, Charles Callis, and he offered his services in the church. So he was called as the branch president at a time when there were essentially, I think, you know, it's just a handful of members. And slowly, he works with the local saints to build up a branch in Cincinnati. And he works hard, especially with the youth. And there's one thing we found, again, this isn't in the book, but we found an article where it talks about the deacons quorum that he led, the deacons that he worked with. And he talks about the importance of honesty and integrity. And some cynics might say, well, this guy's a hypocrite. But for me, this is a guy who has learned his lesson. This is a guy who is trying his best to seek redemption for something stupid he did. Uh, And so when I think about Charles Anderson, I think about a story of redemption. I mean, this is the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ in our lives. This is the power. He gives us second chances, and that's what we see with Charles Anderson. He came to Cincinnati and was given a second chance, and he influenced countless members. So much so that when he and his wife, after their time in Cincinnati ended, they returned to Salt Lake, then they came back on a mission. And Paul Bang, the, the character that we feature in the book, wept when he saw him again just because he loved him so much. And he established a legacy there in Cincinnati that, as a Cincinnatian myself, I've benefited from and, and countless others I've benefited from. You know, I've thought about this many times and, you know, I grew up in Cincinnati. It's my home. The city gave me a home. It's where I met my wife. It gave me my family. I went to school at the University of Cincinnati. It gave me my education. Everything that I value in life, my faith, my family, my education, is because of the work that these saints did in establishing the church in Cincinnati. I am who I am today because of the foundation they laid. And so I believe in redemption. I believe in second chances. We see that with with Charles Anderson. He wasn't a perfect man. We see this in the book. He made some mistakes as well as branch president. But... He laid a foundation that has been so meaningful to me, my family, and and so many people that I love. And I love that his story is getting told. He is somebody that we can learn from. Thank you for sharing that. I really love that personal connection that you have. It makes it a lot more meaningful and so personal to see this man who it would have been very easy for him to just separate from the church, separate himself, and just kind of live his life. It's hard, especially if you think about the culture of the time. You know, when you're disgraced, you're disgraced. Yeah. And so to have the courage to just start over, to go east and try again, I think that takes a lot of courage, especially at his age. And he served faithfully in that branch for decades. I think if you were to go to Cincinnati, no one would really know who he was. It's not like the Bang family where everybody knows the Bangs, but not a whole lot of people know who he is, but he was instrumental in getting this branch started. And he's kind of emblematic of so many people who at this time left Utah for whatever reason went east or went somewhere else in the nation or in the world and just started laying roots for the church, establishing small branches, helping local members learn the ropes as far as church leadership goes. People like him and his wife were really instrumental in in spreading the church throughout the world. And we often don't know their names, but they are vital to the story that we're telling in volume three. Definitely. And it was a tough job to be a branch president and to try, like you said, create this congregation. We read that they were constantly moving based on available space and rent money. And it's very hard to attract converts when you may not even know where you're going to be meeting and you don't know where to tell them to worship. And so he worked really hard to find 
a place for them. And they eventually found this Presbyterian church that they were able to buy and to renovate. And I imagine that being so exciting for the members there. But Scott, what is it about this specific story? Why Cincinnati? How did you come across this story? And why was it selected for saints to represent this time? Well, I think we want to save part of that story for a later volume. But I will say this. One of the things that I found as we were learning more about this branch One of the things that drew me to the story, aside from my personal connection, was this idea of finding a home. So, you know, we see very early on they're meeting in in really rundown places. And this is true for many, many branches outside of Utah. People were just meeting in these ramshackle, you know, storefronts or rented halls that they had to clean every morning. It was not a great situation for anyone. And like I said, respectability was a big thing at this time. And it was very hard to attract people to the church or invite people to a place that you yourself didn't feel comfortable in. And so I was really fascinated by their efforts to find a home. And this is something we see over and over again in these Cincinnati scenes. It's just this branch searching for a permanent spot, really trying to make sure that the foundation they're laying sticks. And their first permanent chapel was this one here on Orchard Street in Cincinnati. It's still standing today. I believe it's an abandoned building, but the church is still there. They eventually moved to a renovated synagogue. And it's not until really 1956, just after the volume ends, that the Cincinnati branch, which if it's not already awarded, it will be soon, finds its permanent home. And that building is still being used today. It's the Norwood building there in Cincinnati, which is also really meaningful to me because I met my wife while attending a singles branch in the Norwood building. So this house that these early saints built, literally built with their hands, is part of my family history as well. Well, and I think that's probably one of the hopes as a writer of saints and as an editor of saints that you hope other people can find these connections wherever they are in the world or whatever they're family history, that they can feel this connection and this heritage and this legacy that was created by the early saints. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we all need to understand as church members is no matter where we are in the church, there is a history to the place where we worship. Every congregation, every ward, every branch, no matter where you are in the world, it has a history. It has a very powerful and meaningful history. And I think one of the things that we can do is seek out that history. Let's learn more about the history of our wards, our stakes, our branches, wherever it is, because there are important stories to be found there. I think one of the great things about this volume is that so many of the stories are relatable to Latter-day Saints today. And I love these different branch presidents we're introduced to. We've got Otto, we have Charles. They are torchbearers in their own right. And church today has their spiritual DNA in it. They've made sacrifices. They've put the time in. I mean, I serve as a branch president now. I can't imagine the logistics of moving from one place to another, having to arrange your own budget. You don't have someone that you can just call who can come and fix something. And I think for members of the church today who are reading saints, it doesn't matter if you're a bishop or branch president, all of these stories in some way can affect and influence us and hopefully motivate us to do good, to be a little better and to learn from the examples and the stories of these saints. So I love all of these characters that are featured, even if like Charles Anderson, we only have them for a short time. There's so much that we can learn from them. There's something powerful about being the only member of the church in your neighborhood or the only member of the church in your school. And that's what we see time and time again with some of these stories in the Tilsit branch or the Cincinnati branch. You know, these are true pioneers in a sense. I remember talking with Paul Bang's daughter, Linda, 
who supplied a lot of the documents for our Cincinnati scenes. And one of the things that she said was, my dad loved being a Latter-day Saint. And I think you see that attitude in so many of these characters that we're featuring. You know, they were the only Latter-day Saints on their street, and they loved being who they were. They loved the church. They loved the restored gospel. They loved what it did for them and their family. And I think that's one of the things that we can learn from this love for the gospel, this love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the church. And hopefully it can give some hope and some comfort to people who are currently experiencing that, that they are the only members of the church on their street or in their city. And even in places that they are still renting their church building, I think what's interesting about Volume 3 is that it's not as far removed from us in timing as the other volumes. And so it's just interesting how much we can relate to these stories and hopefully build our faith. And I think as well, if we reflect on our present circumstances, we get to meet in chapels that have been paid for by those who've gone before us. They have made the church and contributed to the church to enable us to have a much more comfortable and enjoyable in some ways experience than what many of them were going through. And so perhaps as we read this chapter, we can come away with a better appreciation for the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I think that's a great way where this book can help us to take stock of ourselves and our situation in life. Well, Scott, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing some wonderful insights into this really fascinating chapter of Saints. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.